This audio is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton. From the campus of the Wharton School in San Francisco, this is Launchpad on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. Here is Professor Carl Ulrich. Welcome to Launchpad on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School, Sirius XM, Channel 111. I'm your host this week. I'm Carl Ulrich, and I'm Vice Dean of Entrepreneurship and Innovation at the Wharton School, where I teach entrepreneurship innovation as well as product design. I co-host Launchpad with my friend Rob Connybeer. Rob is Managing Director of Shasta Ventures, a leading Silicon Valley venture capital firm. And Rob and I switch off hosting duties, mostly broadcasting from the Wharton School campus in the city of San Francisco, where I am today. The idea behind Launchpad is that while Rob and I both believe that entrepreneurship is intrinsically risky, we also believe that there's some things that you can do to increase your chances of success. And so what we do with the show is host several entrepreneurs each week. We talk about their journey, about how their companies came to be, the challenges they're facing, and we look for opportunities to extract tools, principles, and methods that can help you. And as I said, our basic format is we bring entrepreneurs onto the show. We typically talk for half an hour or so, and we we hear about the challenges they're facing in starting and growing their businesses. We have a a great show today. Um, Our our second guest today is going to be Scott Gustafson, who's president of Spoonful of Comfort, a comfort food delivery service that specializes in soup. And in our second hour, we'll talk to Rachel Drury, who's founder and CEO of Daily Harvest, a New York-based company providing a superfood subscription box. But now I want to welcome our first guest, Gregory Latiri, who's CEO and co-founder of Recycle Track Systems. Gregory, thanks so much for coming in. Hi, Carl. Thanks for having me. All right. So this is one of the very rare instances where your URL and domain name is actually a lot shorter than your name. So I'm going to give out the URL to our listeners. So if they're someplace safe, they can check out the website. It's just rts.com, the three letters, rts.com. And again, that stands for Recycle Track Systems. So Gregory, tell us what RTS does. And we're, we're very proud of that URL. Um, it was not easy to, to achieve and, and to purchase. So we got very lucky there. I think it'll help uh, as we grow this business. You know what? Even though I, I don't like to necessarily do things way out of order, let's just go ahead and talk about that for a minute because okay. I want I do want to make sure and hear about that. So you start your company name is Recycle Track Systems, and a three-letter domain is, is pretty hard to come by. So tell us how you did it. It is. Um, so we we probably would have renamed the company at one point if we couldn't get the URL. And when Adam and I first started the company, one of the things, and I think, you know, the company name was so important, and recycling needed to be in it. It was part of our conversation, and track, because it's what we actually do. We track recycling material and systems, and then RTS just kind of came about, and I said, we need to own the URL. And uh, what happened was my team found it was actually owned by Macquarie Bank out of Australia. It was oh, wow. That's used. a huge bank, yeah. Yeah, huge bank, right? We found the head of investment banking. We emailed him. And I said, I'm a young startup company. We focus on sustainability and recycling, and I want to buy the URL. And he goes, I own it. A couple of people have reached out. Long story short, three emails later, we owned it and um, agreed to a price, went through legal, and then eventually 
got through their legal department. So I think they did us a little favor, but we did spend a good amount of money on it you know, early on. It was risky as an early startup, but I think it helped uh, you know, build the vision. You know, I want to underscore two things about that. The first is I really commend you on on being insistent that you owned a great URL. I think that's super important. And there's one time in your business when you can really do that, and that's when you name the company. So I really commend you on that strategy. And then the second thing I think to underscore here is a lot of times people will be sympathetic to a young entrepreneur starting out. And so you know, it sounds like you approached it the right way and you got a lucky outcome. So it's a great story. Yeah. All right. So let's, let's now get back on track. Give us the elevator pitch. What does Recycle Track Systems do? Sure. So we're, we're a technology company first, but we are in the waste and recycling industry. So really a garbage and recycling company without trucks. So what does that mean? It means that we uh, have massive, you know, large account relationships, some, um, some that you will be well-known, like Whole Foods and WeWork, and we actually service the, uh, the Mets at City Field and the Washington Nationals in D.C., uh, and we do that without owning any trucks. So we've taken the technology that's been in car service and been in food and other sectors, and we've, we've built uh, a technology platform that allows us to be a waste and recycling company across multiple cities, um, and, and service our clients, and then the really the key factor as the you know the business changes and sustainability and, and people look to do better and do more for the environment. We track our recycling material to the appropriate facility. So for for certain, we know the material went to this recycling facility, or for food waste, the food waste that we we recycle went to the farm or the food waste facility, and then we report out on that. And then our our customers have a monthly report that says, hey, I know I recycled, you know, 10 tons of material or, or, or 5,000 pounds, whatever it may be. And that's really good for their constituents, their employees, their customers, and their entire strategy when it comes to building their own brand. Yeah. So, Gregory, you, you alluded to food service. And so is it cliched to say you're the Uber of waste? Is it a, two-side, a two-sided <laughs> it's, market? It's flattering. Uh, I've been yeah. called that, and, and we've been called that before. Um it's you know it's not something that I'm I'm pushing away, but we're a lot more than that as well because um, it's not just a single pickup. Yeah, uh, this is service 365 days a year, you know, seven days a week, and we handle large, large corporations, uh, a three million square foot building I think of in New York City, uh, that you know we four trucks per day, multiple tons per day. So, yeah. but it, it's flattering, and I think they've been very successful in early stages. If we can be compared to that, then you know I'm I'm all for it. Yeah, but, you know, I, I'd say the analogy maybe it doesn't seem quite right. So maybe you can help me a little bit clarify because I would think it's it's not like the need for waste removal is episodic. And it it's something that you're going to once you acquire that customer, you'd hope to keep them for a very long time. So it's is it literally that just on demand one day they say, oh, I need my trash picked up or is it more? that you set up a long-term relationship with them and then you're just you're just uh, providing the resource that you're providing is contracted on a yeah. on a more episodic basis. So it's kind of multifaceted. So the the industry is quite large. It's it's actually about seven times bigger than the taxi industry just comparatively wow. and, yeah. and about 85 billion dollars a year in revenue is generated in the United States alone. So it's a massive massive industry and it's completely fragmented. 
So most of the companies are local within each city or market or town. And then you've got your three or four large waste management, republic, publicly traded companies that are across, you know, multiple cities and, yeah. and regions. So the it, it, it is not like closest truck or, you know, on-demand. We do have an on-demand service, which if I need to get rid of something now, we can route a, a truck that's already on route um, through our logistics system. But it's really, if you think about it, I think of some of the hotels that we have in New York City or in D.C. And knowing when your truck arrives, so... The biggest problem with the industry is I don't know when my truck is going to arrive. I yeah. don't know what truck is arriving. How do I communicate to my cleaning staff? How do I communicate to my steward team, my housekeeping team, and my kitchen staff? So we, when we arrive, our truck uh, notifies via text or email that we've arrived to perform service, and that would be the waste truck. That would be the food waste truck or recycling truck. So whatever people are doing, and this is usually at night, right, 2 o'clock in the morning, 3 o'clock in the morning when you and I might be sleeping, yeah. but a lot of things happen in these cities at night, um, just transparency into when that truck is arriving. And then from a sustainability factor, we take it one step further, which is tracking the material to the appropriate facility and being able to report out on that for the sustainability metrics that a lot of Fortune 500 companies now have as part of their corporate responsibility. Yeah, let's let's drill down on that because – it's in your name, Recycle Track Systems, and I, I was just going to nudge you a little bit on that. To what extent is that sort of a hook to get people interested, in, or to what extent is that really central to what you're doing? But but maybe you could talk a little bit about what what would motivate people to to switch providers in in this space, and how does the recycling angle fit into that? Yeah, it's it's a huge hook. So we operate in, in New York, New Jersey, Pennsylvania, like Philadelphia, D.C. metro. So these are major metropolitan areas. Mm -hmm. And it's important for our clients because a lot of legislation has changed and there's not really good understanding of what's recycled and what's not. And there's a lot of instances where they think the client thinks they're doing a really good job, but then a garbage truck comes and throws everything out. So we've really tried to address that issue at an industry level. And I think recycle track systems, in essence, is really what we do, which is mm -hmm. being able to give the clients transparency into the metrics of what they're getting rid of from a volume perspective. Uh, I think it's what's driven us. When we, when we go after new clients or when clients come after us, it's twofold. It's from the service perspective of having transparency and knowing when your truck is going to arrive. And then the other piece is the validation of the recycling material. So the good part is we, we can – we can really work in two angles on a service perspective and then a sustainability perspective. Our best uh, customers are the ones that actually want both of those things. Yep. All right. So tell us a little bit more about how it works and, and maybe just give us an example of one of your clients and what information you provide. Sure. So I think of a Whole Foods location. Um, let's use New York City as an example. Uh, there's three trucks that arrive per day at this at one literally one location. Mm -hmm. uh, they're set up at different times. One is at 7 o'clock in the morning, one is at 2 o'clock in the afternoon, and one is at 7 o'clock in the evening, and it's different waste streams. So notification when those trucks are arriving. If they need to get rid of extra material that day, they can download our app, or they already have our app for this instance, but our app would allow them to get rid of bulk material. So for this industry, um, if you want to get rid of anything that cannot fit in a bag, may it be a chair, refrigerator, table, things that break, um, they have to order that specially. That can be done through our application. Mm -hmm. So there's, there's more ease in, in that getting to the driver and, and notification of the driver at that time. Um, so, I mean, that's a really good example of kind of a day-to-day -day operations. And then yeah. as a new customer, 
you can download our app and if you're in one of our cities that we're in philly dc new york um if you need an on-demand a true on-demand request you can do that and we can do it we can really do it within the hour but we quote within 12 to 24 hours just Mm -hmm. to make sure we we provide the right customer experience and and who's on the who's on the supply side what what kinds of comp- companies are are providing the the trucks so this is the this is a good part for us so we get to work with licensed uh, professional existing waste companies mm-hmm. uh, so this is not a person that we're hiring off the street you know and and it's we're part of a shared route so we're logically and and logistically optimizing the trucks that are already on the road mm-hmm. so as we've gained market share if you think of a truck that is servicing, say, 50 accounts, and we've provided them another 25 opportunities, that's now 75 opportunities, it, it most likely fits on the same truck. Mm-hmm. So that truck is more profitable. There's less greenhouse gas emissions because it's, it's going to less places. It's more beneficial for the environment. And these companies are, are wanting to do business with us because we're providing them new opportunities for revenue. How, how, would, they, how would they normally acquire customers? It, like any other business, um, through a sales process. But I think what we've really been successful in is partnering with, I would consider, the mid-tiers, the mm-hmm. large independent companies within each city that are competing, that are usually the fourth or fifth or sixth uh, provider and competing against you know your, your publicly traded companies that have mm-hmm. much more capital. So combined through you know a local, real specialized service, and with us and the technology and the the team that we have on our sustainability team, we're much stronger together than even some of the large publicly traded companies. Yeah, yeah. Uh, tell tell us about the. Have have you had to do anything in terms of tracking or information systems on the vehicles, or are they were they already essentially equipped with the data you need? In no, order we, to provide- yeah, we we. I'm sorry. Yeah, we we provide a, a tablet. Um, solution or GPS solution that allows them to look um, as a new customer comes on board, uh, as an on-demand customer or a new bulk order. The driver can then see that there's a there's a GPS and and directions to that account. So it's all done through our system. The, yeah. the entire thing is built in house. And yeah. once that truck arrives, we're, that's how we're able to communicate with our clients. Yeah. So in that respect, I mean, I, as I think about it, I guess that's that's effectively what Uber does. Although they're providing, I think you probably have to provide your own device, but they're providing an app that that provides the the driver interface. So it's it's quite similar for your drivers. There's your there's your comparison, which yeah. is not owning the asset, not yeah. owning the truck or um, the car. Yeah. Yeah. If you're just joining us, you're listening to Launchpad on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School, Sirius XM, Channel 111. I'm your host this week, Carl Ulrich, and I'm speaking with Gregory Latiri, who's the co-founder and CEO of Recycle Track Systems. Uh, Gregory, what, where'd this idea come from? How'd you get into this? That, that's the fun part. Uh, so Adam Pasquale, my co-founder, uh, him and I have been friends for, I think it's almost 15 years now, the, the time is flying by. And uh, about four years ago, we were literally uh, hanging out, working out together, and, and he had mentioned to me, he's from the industry, four generations, his family's in the waste and recycling industry in New York City. And he, he goes, I, I think, you know, technology can change the space. I think it can change the waste and recycling industry. And I said to him, I was currently at Bank of America, but I was out there in their technology department, so that gave me kind of the, 
the the grounding to be able to execute on this. And I said, Adam, I have no idea what you're, you're talking about. Teach <laughs> me about it. And um, he literally taught me the industry and is you know at crash course in about 30 days. And in day 31, we agreed to start a company. And uh, at the, from my standpoint, I think if you spoke to him, it, he would feel very similar. But it, it got to a point where it made so much sense yeah. that if we didn't do it, I would have regretted it the rest of my life. Yeah. So I got to ask you, I bet you get asked this all the time, but, you, you know, New Jersey, New York City, uh, waste, waste hauling is, mm. is, you know, notorious, at least in the, in the public imagination, you know, mob mobsters and, uh, uh, pretty nasty business has, first of all, is that true? And if so, how, how have you navigated that? It hasn't been my experience. It is actually the first thing my mother said to me when yeah. when I said I was going to start this. <laughs> it was her <laughs> first question, too. So we are asked it a lot. Um, it, it, it really isn't. Um, it's highly regulated, especially in New York and New Jersey. There's two organizations that, that regulate it on a day-to-day basis. Um, and um, it, it's been very successful for us. So um, I think it's, it's held back some others from starting, probably because of that negative yeah. connotation. But it's it's been very positive for us, and we've been you know accepted by the industry, by both the government um, you know and, and governing bodies that that license uh, companies. So it it hasn't been our experience, but you know I've been asked that probably a few hundred times. Yeah, I, I knew you you it was the case. But I, let's see if we can actually generalize the insight there, which would be some of these industries are. You know they're they're superficially unattractive to entrepreneurs, and those may make for the best opportunities because people aren't thinking about innovating in waste management. And so, I, I guess for our listeners, I would I would think there's actually a pretty interesting insight there, which is something that an industry that has a bad reputation or a negative reputation that actually may be a good place to look because it's probably an area where where others have not have not uh, overrun it. I think Carl. One of the things when I, when we started this, Adam and I, um, one a good friend of mine said, "Nobody did this yet." What do you mean? Yeah, like he was shocked, and yeah. uh, I'm I'm glad they didn't, but we yeah. have, and we've yeah. been really really successful. Uh, you know, if you look at the website rts.com, you could see some of our corporate uh, corporate partnerships. Yeah, it's pretty amazing. You know, uh, but on on that same in that same vein, what what is your if you think about Republican waste management, you know, big, big, big companies, they, I suspect, are a little sluggish. But, but what is, how have you thought about the competitive response and, and how to manage that? It's, it's not really a big concern of mine. Like I mentioned, the, the, it's a massive size industry. They have market share, but, um, you know, the numbers that are thrown around, there's about 12,000 to 15,000, and then this is the range of private sanitation companies in the U.S. So you have two major companies that have, you know, maybe 15 to 20 percent market share across the country. There's still room, and even in the markets that they're at, um, you know, our, our feeling is people are looking for new ideas. People are looking for more transparency when it comes to technology. They're looking for the ease of use of using an app and not having to track down a truck. They want to be notified when that truck arrives. And more importantly, from the sustainability factor, they want to know their material was recycled, and they want to be able to tell their employees or customers that, you know, hey, we did our, we did our part this month, and it's been working. Yeah. Yeah. So, so take us back to the beginning. You and Adam are, are kicking this around saying, okay, we got to do it. 
what what was the first milestone you worked towards? Well, first, I I personally needed to understand um, the business, and and you know, being friends with somebody and going into business with somebody is two different things. I mean, I yeah. left a really good job at Bank of America to do this, and and he left the job as well, and he just had a, a newborn. And I remember, actually, I met with his wife like numerous times. That <laughs> it, it, I, I like put Adam to the side, and I said to his wife, Michael, I said are we on board here? Because we're going to really leave our jobs for this. And uh, she was on board, which made me, I wasn't married yet. I got married a few years ago, but at that time it was, um, it was important to have buy-in from, from his family. Also, we, at one point we actually flew his dad in from Florida um, because I, I had heard enough from Adam and I just wanted to make sure his dad had owned a company obviously years before that we weren't crazy. Like this was yeah. actually going to work at some point. Uh, but, but, Understanding the business and then monetizing it. So uh, understanding how customers are acquired, uh, the contract terms, the service that needs to be provided, and then really kind of understanding who are we going to look to hire phase one, who could we afford phase one, mm-hmm. who could we afford phase two, um, and then obviously raise some capital. We started with friends and family, uh, which is a challenge in itself. You're asking your friends and family to invest, which is uh, it's challenging, but you, you've, if if you're into it and, and they believe that, I think they'll support you. Uh, and then, obviously, we were always looking for an institutional investor when we got to a certain size, which we were able to close um, a Series A round uh, last year, mm-hmm. which has just helped us. I mean, skyrocket from you know an eight-person team to about 35 people now. Yeah, yeah. I want to go back. I want to talk about the fundraising in a minute, but let's go back to that first phase again. So I. I take your point. You had to become convinced and get everybody on the same page, including the other stakeholders, family and so forth, that this was you were willing to take the leap. But I'm wondering about what you had to do before you could acquire the first customer. Did you did you did you build the app or did you do it with sort of smoke and mirrors initially? No. So we had a unique situation because in this industry, it's highly regulated. We had to apply for a license. Ah. So we had six months while our license got approved, and, and in that time, we built uh, the we built an iPhone app first. Mm-hmm. So when we uh, we had Whole Foods as one of our first major customers about three months into doing business, which was incredible yeah. because Adam had a previous relationship with them, and we were able to kind of address a need right away. So we built the app for Whole Foods. But obviously, with the, with the um, understanding, if Whole Foods liked it, then others would. Uh, and then kind of understood, all right, we've got something here. We've got tech. We've got an app that can go in a truck. We've got an app that can go into a customer's hand. Now how do we make it better? And we've, we're still trying to do that every single day. Yeah. Okay, great. So t- tell us a little bit more about this uh, Series A. I, I just looked on Crunchbase. It looks like you've raised almost $17 million in total in this, this last round was something like 11 or 12. Maybe talk us yeah. through a little bit what that fundraising experience was like. It was uh, it was very different than I expected. So you you can watch Silicon Valley right on HBO or yeah. you hear all these different rumors and, and what people think it should be. And, and now I'm actually kind of giving advice to people, other entrepreneurs. Sure. Let's hear um, But it's the first we we had a, a venture capital company reach out to us, Volition Capital, who we ended up doing a majority of our, our um, Series A with. They're based out of Boston. They actually reached out to us rather first. They were one of the first few that reached out to us, hmm. and we thought we could get a better price. So we pushed them off, and we said we need to do our due diligence 
we ended up meeting with about 20 venture capital firms, uh, some in New York, some on the phone that were based in California, some in Boston, and uh, over about six-month period. And I think towards the end, we were like, okay, we, we need to figure out how to get a deal. And like, hopefully we didn't screw up a deal. Yeah. Um, but we ended up going back with Volition, and I think we probably got, even though we grew our business probably by another you know, fifty to $100,000 a month, uh, since we started talking to them, we still end up probably getting about the same deal we would have got six months earlier. Yeah. So, so what's so the advice? My unique yeah. experience. Uh, you know, if I went back, I, I would probably, uh, I, you need to learn. You need yeah. to learn on your own. And I think you, you hear people tell you when you first go through it, oh, these VCs, they just want to, they want to take from you. They don't care about the, the founders. They just want to own as much as possible. That's not really true. I, I, that wasn't my experience. Mm-hmm. They actually want to invest in a company they think they think can grow, and they need to believe in the founders and the the CEO and COO that you can you can execute on this idea. Because my experience is the investors don't actually want to be part of the day to day. So what we're learning, you know, as part of we're almost a year into the Series A, is how to manage our board of directors and and how to manage expectations, which is mm-hmm. a different different scenario than the Series A. But from a Series A standpoint. You, you, you're going into business with this person or this company and this, this partner that is going to represent the, the venture capital firm or, the, or an angel fund, and you need to have a really good relationship with them. You need to be able to trust them. You should be very transparent. You've heard me say that word a few times today yeah. for our business and for capital raise, and they need to know even a couple of the maybe the scary things that you might not want to share. You might want to share some of that stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, if the idea makes sense, you will get – investors behind you. I think there's plenty of uh, capital out there now. You just have to find you know, a niche or an idea you believe in and that you're willing to, to fight for. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think let's just see if we can, we can sharpen that advice because I think it's uh, on the fundraising, I think it's, it's really good, which is you, you probably need to ask for some advice about the reasonable range of valuations you could expect. Get some other people to give you an opinion on that. But once you have a sense of what a fair deal is, you you know you could avoid wasting six months if you if you were willing just to go with a, a firm that you trust, uh, even if it meant a ten percent twenty percent difference in valuation, it'd probably be worth it. I mean that's what I'm hearing you say. Yeah, we we had a couple deals on the table. Um, one was for about two thirds less capital. Yeah, and I got advice from people saying take less money. It was less dilution. Yeah, and and go and, and it, you know it was three million dollars was was what mm-hmm. somebody had offered it. And to me, I would it wasn't enough. Like we believe that we have something that could be truly incredible. Mm-hmm. Uh, when you talk about the size of the space and what we've achieved, that it, it would I felt like I might have to raise money in twelve or eighteen months, or maybe I couldn't do a deal that. I wanted to do or hire that person that I needed to hire in tech or marketing. Um, so it just it just felt right. And Larry Chang is the one from Volition Capital who, who ended up doing a deal with us, and he um, he believed. And you know he was also trying to sell us a little, which felt good. But he's shrewd as well, so he was selling us, but in, in the price that he was willing to pay. All right. Well, shout out to Larry. Sounds like yeah. you got a you got a good deal. 
You got um, a great partner there. Yeah, it's really great. All right. Well, Gregory, this is a super interesting story. We're we're out of time, but I very much appreciate your taking the time to join us today. Sure. Thank you for having me. It was great. All right. So for more information about recycled track systems, you can go to wait for it. RTS.com. That's all it is. Just RTS.com. Great domain. Coming up, Scott Gustafson from Spoonful of Comfort joins me to talk about his company that sends soup and cookies to loved ones. I'm Carl Ulrich, Vice Dean of Entrepreneurship and Innovation, and you're listening to Launchpad on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School, Sirius XM 111. For more guest interviews, check out our Wharton Business Radio Highlights podcast on iTunes and Google Play. 